Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. OnScript is a podcast that focuses on biblical studies and theology and the intersection between them. Also, I want to remind you that we have another podcast called Biblical World, where we explore the history, culture, archaeology, geography of the Bible. So if the biblical backgrounds material is interesting to you, then please check us out at Biblical World Podcast, and you can find us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. And finally, I want to just say a word of thanks to Ed Hackey for producing this show so faithfully over the last five years. And Ed is going to be retiring from the podcast in September, and we're so grateful, Ed, for all that you've done. So without further ado, enjoy this episode. Welcome back, everybody. Our guest today is Professor Bill Brown of Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia, where he is William Marcellus McFeeders Professor of Old Testament. Bill has published numerous books, including but not limited to a handbook to Old Testament exegesis, which I use in one of my exegesis courses here at Regent, Sacred Sense, Discovering the Wonder of God's Word and World, The Seven Pillars of Creation, The Ethos of the Cosmos. He's edited the Oxford Handbook on the Psalms, and he's written the book we're discussing today, Deep Calls to Deep, The Psalms in Dialogue Amid Disruption, published by Abingdon. So, Bill, welcome to OnScript. Thank you, Matt. It's a delight to be with you. Well, you're. Uh, it's great to have you on. Your work has has been very formative for me over the last uh, 10 to 12 years, I would say. Um, I only discovered you as a scholar toward the end of my time at Emory, um, or I probably would have gone over to uh, Columbia and taken a few courses with you during my doctoral studies, Uh, but I've certainly learned a lot from you uh, over the years, so I really appreciate uh, the work that you've done. I'd love to hear, just to start out, uh, how you became captivated by the Old Testament. What were some of the formative experiences for you? Yeah. How much time do we have, Matt? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it takes. Um, Well, it goes way back, many, many years ago, uh, when I was a a student. I, um, I had always been active in my local church in Tucson, Arizona. And and so I grew up in uh, the Christian faith by a wonderful church, uh, wonderful parents. And, and, uh, and through my middle school and high school years, I was very scientifically oriented. And, and through my first uh, half of my college years, I was an engineering major. And, but at one point in the middle of my college career, I felt this calling to expand my horizons and to move beyond science and engineering to matters of philosophy and theology uh, and faith. And during that time, I discerned a call to ministry. And uh, and so instead of uh, finishing off with an engineering degree, I I came out with a philosophy degree, much to the dismay of my my dad in particular. And so I uh, I did some uh, youth ministry before going to seminary, and I thought that throughout all that time, I would become a pastor. And until I started taking some really fascinating classes in seminary, including theology and and Greek and eventually Hebrew in my second year. And it was in that second year that I just fell in love with, with Hebrew. That's what captivated, captivated me uh, about the Old Testament being written in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, uh, as you know. And, um, and that sort of launched a trajectory. Another formative influence for me was the first class that uh, Dr. Patrick Miller taught at, uh, at Princeton, and it was on the Psalms. And that was utterly enthralling and captivating. And to read about the Psalms that express real honest-to-God dialogue uh, with God and with, uh, with each other, that just stole my heart. 
And so uh, from there, I decided it would really be fun, exciting, captivating to continue biblical studies, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, I've always harbored a love more for Hebrew than for Greek. Greek has its elegance and its refined syntax. And Hebrew, on the other hand, is just earthy and messy, uh, particularly poetry. Uh, and so I, that, that spoke to me. And, uh, and so I've been mucking around in Hebrew and in the Old Testament ever since. Yeah, that's a good description of Hebrew. And, you know, I always tell my students, like, as we're learning grammar rules in Hebrew, like, it's it's one thing to learn the rules here with the textbook and another thing to experience different words and forms out in the wild. And and that's where everything's fair game. So, and, and you've also maintained a, a lively interest in science along the way. So, you didn't leave science behind. And what forms did uh, that interest take uh, for you over the years, and how does it inform your work? So, Matt, I when I went to seminary, I thought I had to, to sort of bracket away my interest in science to kind of push that in the background. And I sort of lived like that through seminary, uh, graduate school. My, uh, my dissertation was on a text-critical assessment of the Hebrew and Greek texts of Genesis 1. And then for my first few years of teaching, uh, I sort of left science because I thought it was really of no use to me theologically and, and particularly exegetically. And it wasn't until just perhaps... Ten years ago, I recovered my interest in science and realizing that for today, the Bible needs to be put in conversation with, uh, with scientific understandings of how the world works, in part because the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, has a keen interest in creation. Uh, from Genesis 1 through some of the Psalms, uh, the Book of Job, uh, the wisdom literature, it, that includes Proverbs as well. I realized there could be a lot of exegetical and theological fruit from bringing science and and ancient biblical faith in conversation with each other as, as a way of uh, going beyond the sort of stereotyped debates between scientism and absolutism with regards to faith, that kind of debate that captures the news on occasion but rather to host a constructive dialogue about what wisdom the ancient faith of the Old Testament has to offer for us who are uh, who understand the world scientifically. There's just no escape from that, and there shouldn't be any escape from that because the science has taught us so much about how the world works. And so, so I ended up writing a book that uh, was part of an adventure funded by the Luce Fellowship uh, for a year that uh, took me to talk with scientists, uh, most of them people of faith, about how they integrate their faith and their scientific research together. And, and from those conversations, I hosted dialogue between the various creation traditions of the Old Testament and, and various scientific understandings of the world from cosmology to uh, microbiology. And it was truly an adventure, an adventure in, in dialogue that I think uh, helps us gain a greater appreciation of the ancient wisdom of the biblical text, uh, as well as uh, making it relevant uh, for today. I have found science and, and many other lenses, but science in particular as a way of deepening our understanding of, of biblical faith rather than countering it or disproving it and, and what, what, what some have claimed over the years. I'm all about overcoming the so-called conflict between science and faith. There really is no conflict. There's a lot of uh, compatibility, and there's a lot of constructive dialogue that emerges when, when a scientific understanding departs from, from an ancient biblical perspective of, uh, of creation. For sure, yeah, and and that that was uh, that came out in your book, the Seven Pillars of Creation, and uh, which is a fantastic read. And you're right; it's a it I, that that adventure that you experienced is is uh, evident in the book, and uh, I, j I just found it so fascinating. And, and your ability to create a dialogue with scripture that wasn't a sort of flattening of the Bible is doing science, or um, the Bible is somehow uh, just completely, you know, speaking in a completely different register. 
Um, so I, I thought that was very helpful. Um, so, so let's talk about your book, Deep Calls to Deep, uh, the Psalms in Dialogue Amid Disruption. So what motivated you to write this book? Yeah, thank you, Matt. A very strong motivation or series of motivations that began with the onset of the pandemic. The pandemic has exposed deep, deep divisions within American culture regarding how how it was to be handled um, and uh, and the science and 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 just disputes about uh, whether to wear a mask or to take the vaccine shot and the and the gross amount of misinformation that was spread and political and religious divisions that emerged uh, from this common crisis. And so I found, particularly the year 2020, certainly continuing into 2021 and, and now into 2022, to be a time of, of multiple disruptions, some of which more deeply exposed by the pandemic, but other divisions that have been, been around for you know, 400 years. And so that prompted me to take a look at the Bible in a, in a new way and to realize that much of the biblical literature uh, was written in a time of national historical disruption, historical trauma, particularly the exile and the destruction of the southern kingdom. And before that, of course, the destruction of the northern kingdom and forced migration and all. And much of much of that, much of the biblical literature was written in the wake of this monumentally catastrophic uh, event for ancient Israel. And so there's that, as well as uh, noting that among our deeply divided communities, at least here on American soil, the art of dialogue has been totally lost. It is no longer practice. Instead of dialogue, there's demonization. Instead of mutual conversation or respect, there is disdain and contempt for the opposing view and those who represent the opposing views. And I realized that in addition to disruption being the occasion for much of the biblical literature, what the Bible, what biblical literature also does is bring different viewpoints into dialogue, because the Bible preserves a variety of perspectives, a variety of traditions that have their differences with each other. In the book, I like to say that the Bible is its own e pluribus unum, this canonical this canonical voice out of a variety of voices, um, each different. In fact, another analogy would be that if the Bible were a choir, it would be a choir that is both harmonious and dissonant. And yet they're all singing as, as, as singing as loudly and uh, as passionately as possible. And yet uh, there's, there's, there's dissonance as well as beautiful harmony. And um, as a biblical scholar, and really more accurately, simply a reader of the Bible, I, I find listening to those differences is really critical in understanding the Bible as a whole. And so out of those two things, disruption and the dire need for dialogue, that those are the two concerns that uh, brought me back to the Psalms. I did write a book on the Psalms many years ago called Seeing the Psalms, exploring the metaphors and images of God and community and, and creation uh, throughout the Psalms. And, and that was a lot of fun. I learned a lot in that adventure. And, and this book is more like, uh, instead of seeing the Psalms, is talking with the Psalms and seeing them as uh, voices in, in dialogue, in dialogue with each other internally as one Psalm says something different about God compared to another Psalm as well as how the Psalms are in dialogue uh, beyond the Psalter with uh, so many other traditions uh, throughout the, uh, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, and, and you talk about how the Psalms is, is the sort of mini Old Testament theology. And, and so is this book in some ways your Old Testament theology as well? <laughs> in some ways, yes. Maybe I've arrived at that finally uh, to an Old Testament theology as I've been um, exploring away and sometimes floundering. Because two things that really uh, amaze me about um, the Old Testament and the Psalms in particular. First is uh, its diversity. And, and secondly, is the willingness to enter into a common room for dialogue uh, with a common theological conviction. And so it's the unity and diversity and diversity and unity 
both of those things are are our intention. The Bible makes room for tension between conflicting viewpoints. Uh, on the other hand, there's also this striving for common ground, theological and, and ethical, that also motivates these psalms and the variety of biblical literatures to engage in in its own dialogue that I think is meant to motivate us as readers of the Bible into dialogue with each other. Yeah, and your choir analogy that you used earlier sort of represents two tendencies among interpreters, right? So some will emphasize the cacophony and and talk about how among the different voices in Scripture, you just have dissonance all the time, uh, and these cannot work together. And then on the other hand, interpreters that want to resolve all the tension and overemphasize the harmony of scripture. So how how does how do the psalms help us navigate those you know avoiding maybe those polar opposites? Um, what are some of the ways that it fosters something else? Yeah, uh, one thing to add to that Matt in terms of background is that over the years for me in the classroom teaching exegesis and uh, Old Testament introduction and particular in certain biblical books, I have found among students this temptation to harmonize everything and anything that appears to be conflicting in the Bible, to, to provide, to achieve some uniform message. And, and so, uh, so I do enjoy pointing out differences, as uh, some of our colleagues love to do, perhaps on the somewhat of a cacophonic side. But on the other hand, I'm also motivated in finding common ground, or at least mutual growth and respect among these voices that uh, lead us forward in faith and in wisdom. So how do the Psalms do that? Well, I think for one thing, the fact that uh, these 150 Psalms in the Masoretic canon are set together. They are, they are together. Each psalm set side by side in a certain sequence uh, that may not be linear in terms of its overarching movement, but at least they're, they're together. And so one image that comes to my mind when I, when I look at the psalms, all 150 of them, I envision this massive round table with 150 seats, and each seat for each psalm. And uh, and they're all together on, around this table. They are praising and praying and lamenting and instructing, as the psalms do, towards God. But I'm, I'm asking myself, what, what would they say to each other once they're done praising and praying to God, what would they share together? What would they articulate to each other as, as maybe corrections of each other? Or, or at least in terms of what wisdom would they share uh, to each other? And so that's what this book is about, is kind of overhearing what the psalmists have to say to each other over, say, a good meal after they have prayed to God and, and asked for God's blessing. Yeah, and, and you, you've got that great section toward the end of the book where you talk about Psalms, walk, I forget the exact language, but walking two by two, and how a number of the Psalms seem intentionally to be paired up that are, are quite uh, different from each other in terms of their perspective. Do you, do you want to just give an example of a, a place where that pairing happens and how that sort of points towards some intentionality on the part of the Psalter. Sure thing. Um, This might sound a little counterintuitive for some of our listeners, but uh, the Psalms are very interested in retelling ancient Israel's history. And and there are several Psalms that we scholars refer to as quote-unquote historical Psalms because they are devoted to retelling the story of ancient Israel. And so there's there's one very natural but contrastive pair, Psalms 105 and 106. And and one of those Psalms recounts the, the exodus and the wilderness as a time of triumph, as a time of God's uh, grace. Uh, towards God's people in guiding them through, out of Egypt, into the wilderness, and eventually into settled life uh, in the land. And Psalm 106 covers that same span of time, if you will, but emphasizes Israel's rebellions and transgressions, and uh, thereby emphasizing not only God's care and grace, but also judgment, uh, as well as forbearance. In, in seeing this people through these crises. 
And so these two psalms, they're both historical psalms, they cover the same historical period, more or less, but they give two very different views of Israel and 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 God through this uh, through the thick and thin of 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 Israel's story. So that's that's a natural pair that uh, needs to, they belong together. These two psalms because they are different and yet cover the same same topics, the same span of history. So that that's one example. And in fact, I would say that the very beginning of the Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2, both of them uh, together introduce the Psalter as a whole. And really, on the face of it, they could not be more different. Uh, Psalm 1 emphasizes the righteous individual who is engaged with Torah, meditating on it day and night, and like a transplanted tree uh, is there beside flowing channels of water. That's the righteous person who is uh, set against uh, the wicked who are like chaff. And so that's Psalm 1. But Psalm 2 is about uh, this messianic figure who is established on Zion by God in the midst of international conflict. So two very different worlds, the individual with the Torah and uh, the king in the midst of international conflict as God's chosen, anointed. What do they have? What do they have in common together? Well, you have to kind of look hard, but they were intentionally placed together in order to begin a conversation, a dialogue that finds its way running throughout the entire Psalter from beginning to end. And, and part of that conversation is the question, which is more important, Torah or Zion and the king based on Zion? And, and where is righteousness in the midst of this? Um, uh, and, and that conversation continues throughout the Psalms. Um, we have certain Psalms of Torah that elevate Torah as the end all when it comes to faithful obedience to God. And we also have other Psalms, the so-called royal Psalms, that emphasize the role of the king in providing order and justice and triumph on behalf of God. Uh, the wicked in Psalm 1 remained undefined. But in Psalm 2, we have the nations who are in an uproar conspiring against uh, God and God's anointed. And so there's a parallel there. So you can find these parallels between Psalms 1 and 2 and, and the issues that emerge from bringing them together. And those issues continue to have their play throughout the Psalms. So, yeah. And, and so you might say the Psalter actually begins with a uh, a dialogue in the beginning, the in the beginning in the Psalms, there was dialogue uh, between the issue of Torah and Zion, and how are they to be related together, and which one might be might, might be of more value than the other. Right, and and you also talk about how there's tensions with, uh, or conversation even within a, a given Psalm, like Psalm eighty nine being an example of uh, the the Psalm that extols the covenant faithfulness of God, perhaps more than any other psalm, that then proceeds to say, but you've, you know, cast the king's crown down in the dust and and essentially trampled on the on the covenant. You've broken this covenant, God. So um, that tension can even be expressed in a in one given act of worship or praise or prayer within a psalm. Yeah, you get that particularly in the communal laments, um, whether uh, Psalm 89 or Psalm 44 that uh, praises God for deeds of the past and then, and then question, where is God now in the midst of such national suffering? And so it's using the past. It's like some of these Psalms bring, bring up the past in conflict with the present as a way of dialoguing with, with God about what is going on here. God, be God. Be the God of Chesed as you promised to be and as you demonstrated in the past. Uh, so, yeah, exactly, Matt. So, certain Psalms host their own um, individual dialogue as well. Psalm 89, Psalm 44, and other Psalms as well. So you have in the beginning of the Psalms, there was dialogue. And of course, uh, in the beginning of the canon, there was dia dialogue too between Genesis 1 and 2. So maybe talk about some of the ways that the Psalms are dialoguing about creation. Because uh, you've, you've organized your book in terms of the, the dialogues that Psalms, have, Psalms are having with the rest of the canon, which is a, a great way of looking 
both at the Psalms and through the Psalms outward. So what are some of those creation dialogues happening? Yeah, so the Bible begins, as you well noted, Matt, with a dialogue. In the beginning, a dialogue was created by bringing together the priestly account of Genesis 1, 1, 1 to 2, 3, and the so-called Yahwist account in chapters 2 and 3. And they're both very, very different, with different orientations, different foci, different styles of, of writing. And so already the Bible begins with this dialogue of creation. And, and you need to know something about that primordial dialogue before moving on to what the Psalms have to say about uh, creation uh, as well. So, so briefly, the first three chapters of Genesis, on the one hand, uh, the priestly account reflects this systematic unfolding of creation uh, that is prompted by God's commands. And the Lord said, and God said, let there be light, uh, and there was light. And ten times God speaks creation into being. And it's very cosmically oriented. You have the, the stars created on the fourth day, and on the fifth day, aquatic and um, avian creatures, birds of the air and the fish of the sea, and on the sixth day, land animals, and human beings created in God's image uh, for dominion. And so a very elevated view of, of humanity in Genesis 1. But in Genesis 2, you have sort of a reverse order of God cultivates a garden and creates the human being, the Adam, uh, for the garden. And then it's later that the animals are created for the Adam to find a suitable match. And so there's a different order, and, and there's a different origin for humanity as well. Um, the Adam is created out of the ground, out of the Adamah, which makes the Adam a groundling uh, tied, to, tied to the earth. And so you have a very elevated view of humanity in Genesis 1, and you have a, um, a very lowly, or better, a very grounded view of humanity in, in Genesis 2. So, and, and God is different in both of these traditions as well. God, I like to say that in Genesis 1, God is king of the cosmos. And in Genesis 2, God is king of the compost. Uh, in, in God's work with the soil and creating not only the human, first human being, uh, Adam, but also the animals as well, are all created from the ground. So it's as if God trades God's royal scepter in Genesis 1 for a, um, a garden spade in Genesis 2. God gets down and dirty in Genesis 2, whereas in Genesis 1, God is uh, utterly transcendent and, and cosmically royal. So you already have that dialogue. What is God? Who is God? Who are, and what uh, is humanity? And, and the genius of bringing these two stories together thanks to our, our ancient editors, is that uh, we are both. There's truth to each of them, to highlight both the complexity of our identity as, hum as human beings and the complexity of divine identity as well, both transcendent and, and very much imminent uh, with regards to creation. So you've got that primordial dialogue. What happens in the Psalms? I'm glad you asked that question, Matt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so you have a various uh, psalms of creation. It's not evident. It would be. It would have been cool if the first psalm was a psalm of creation to kind of mirror uh, the, the the movement of the Pentateuch from creation to human history to Israel's history. But we don't have that in the Psalms. We we do have some creation imagery in Psalm one, uh, as we've already noted the uh, the, the tree flourishing beside flowing streams. We do have that, and maybe there's a subtle allusion to the tree of life in Genesis 2. But, uh, and and but you, ha you have the, um, the Torah wisdom by which God created the world, arguably, in Genesis, yeah, or, sorry, exactly. uh, Psalm 1. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there may very well be a, this connection between Torah and creation hinted at in Psalm 1. But actually, our first Bonafide creation psalm, I would say, is the eighth psalm, very familiar, and it um, it has to do with uh, basically humanity's role with the animal kingdom. But as 
um, as many of our listeners would know, the psalm begins, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then in verse 5, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? A perennial question, who are we? (laughs) But then the psalmist answers the question by claiming, yet you, O God, have made them a little lower than divine and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, so forth and so on. And so some have said that Psalm 8 is sort of a poetic version of Genesis 1 with its emphasis on on dominion and and this identity of humanity being very close to the divine, just slightly lower in the language of Psalm 8. So you have Psalm 8 and, and the question of humanity's place and role in creation with everything else placed under humanity's feet. So that's Psalm 8. Well, a much longer creation psalm is found in Psalm 104, which also praises God for God's majesty and transcendence, but then starts to describe creation in very different ways. We have humanity is not even mentioned till three quarters of the psalm has already been um, read. And so it's almost as if humanity is sort of an afterthought in a way. And, and before, between God's transcendence and, and, and creation of, of, uh, of the heavens and the earth and, and humanity's appearance, finally, we have all these animals that are listed from conies to lions and even Leviathan. And, and so these animals of the wild are highlighted in Psalm 104. And then, and then there's humanity. In fact, if you didn't know any better, the way humanity is described in relationship to the lion is that the lions take the night shift and human beings take the day shift, both both to earn their living. And, and so there, humanity, there's nothing about dominion, human dominion over creation. Uh, humanity is simply one species among many species, each one having its rightful place and and way of of flourishing uh, in in God's creation, a very different model of of humanity's place in creation of, of one among many uh, li- forms of life uh, on the planet in diversity, all different yet all finding their rhythm and and way of coexisting together. So the so the Psalms are are not letting us just do our anthropology with Genesis one um, reflected in Psalm eight, but but saying hey we've we've got to you know, you know incorporate Psalm one hundred four and you you talking a book about Psalm one forty eight as well, a very very theocentric Psalm, but in a similar way decenters the human. And so what's the what's the effect of this dialogue um, about? human beings as as we kind of pan out from from these individual psalms are they are they talking past each other like what um you know what what kind of dialogue are are we to imagine here well it's over that issue of humanity's relationship to the rest of creation are we a part of creation or are we apart from creation in some distinctive, if not unique, way. And the fact that we have both of these psalms, not to mention Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3, all together uh, within the same literary body, within the canon, forces the reader, at least, not to see these uh, traditions as talking past each other, but talking really with each other. Uh, Again, that image of the psalmist all around the table uh, they may be shouting, maybe some of them standing up, but they've just completed a, um, they've just, they're, they're either eating or have completed a good meal that they've shared together. And so they're obligated to talk with and to each other as we are today as readers of communities, part of communities of reading uh, these various traditions and, and finding out, kind of discerning what is more critical for our day and time. And that's part of the process is discerning, discerning critically and within our context, and I suggest particularly within our ecologically degraded context uh, today, what do, what do the Psalms have to provide 
and the Bible as a whole in terms of wisdom. And and uh, it forces us to to either choose one view over and against another, or to find ways to to achieve some common ground, if not uh, reconciliation among these conflicting viewpoints. And and so just personally, how I've wrestled with these differences is to realize that part of what's gotten us into trouble as a species on this planet is that we have emphasized so much the dominion model over and against the the model of um, of serving creation, which is what uh, the Adam is commissioned to do to uh, to serve and preserve the garden or to till and to keep it, which is the more traditional translation that is taking care of um, of creation. And when it comes to the dialogue between Psalms eight and one hundred four, we can still affirm, uh, and we should, uh, the power that humanity has on Earth. But the question is, do we wield that power? for exploitation and destruction, or do we wield that power to find uh, harmony and a way of coexisting with the rest of creation, recognizing that we're all part of the same. We all come from the common creaturehood that God has created us to be. We're all creatures uh, before God. And so we're all, we're not independent, we're not autonomous. We are dependent upon God. And God has created a world that is meant to be sustaining, flourishing, not just for humanity, but for for all of God's good creatures and God's good creation. And, and you mentioned Psalm 148. And I found that Psalm to be a way of actually reconciling these two very different viewpoints, because it's a roll call for all creation to give praise from, from the heavens and the winds to uh, the deep sea creatures, the monsters of the sea, to human beings, all, all created to give praise to God. And, uh, and so there is this level playing field, or should I say level praising field, when it comes to all of creation in relationship to, to God. And perhaps our responsibility, perhaps humanity's power is to be exercised in a way that ensures that all creatures can give praise to God fully, fully, which means to say that a polluted stream cannot give praise to God, or smoggy skies cannot give praise to God, or or forests that are destined to be cut down and turned into toilet paper. They have they don't have much reason to give praise to God. And so if you want to talk about dominion, which uh, is is so problematic in so many ways, but if you want to keep that language, then then it's sort of a liturgical dominion that is illustrated in Psalm 148 in which which humanity is called upon to call all of creation to praise, including ourselves. And to do that, humanity has to ensure that the the world can give praise to God. I call it an ecology of praise, which is how the Psalms end up uh, ecologically. That begins, it's a journey that begins with Psalm 8, with the emphasis on human dominion, moves towards Psalm 104, in which coexistence is the name of the game, and then Psalm 148, in which humanity's special role in creation is to enable the rest of creation and ourselves to give full-throated praise to God, to give good reason to give praise to God. And that good reason comes from the flourishing of all, all creatures. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful image, and I, I can't remember if you said it in, in this book or a different one, uh, but it's it's kind of dominion as choir directing um, is is sort of the image. Um, I, I want to switch to a speed round, and so I thought I'd start out by asking about a, a scientific, I don't, I don't know, not discovery, but a scientific enterprise right now with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. So uh, I. I assume you've been following that somewhat. Yes. And uh, what are you hoping for there? You know, what, what's something you're excited about with this uh, space telescope? Yeah, thank you for asking. I actually have a friend, an astronomer at the University of Arizona, who had a hand in developing uh, this special telescope. And all I can say is that he was a very nervous person during during the Christmas season because that was the time it was to be launched. And uh, so many astronomers and astrophysicists and engineers were... S- 
yeah, on pins and needles uh, to see and and hope for that this would be a successful launch. And all indications is that it has been a successful launch and the unfolding of the mirror is successful. I am I could not be more excited about this new chapter in um, astronomical research. The Hubble Space Telescope, to which we are all so much indebted, uh, has given us fantastic photographs and new knowledge about the extent, the age of the universe. And the James Webb Telescope is going to push that really to the 10th degree. And one of the most exciting new disciplines in science is a discipline called astrobiology. And that is the study of life outside of Earth. It includes, of course, exploring the possibility of life on other planets within our solar system. So the intense, the intense research of whether life ever existed on Mars, or there's a there's a moon off of Jupiter, uh, Europa, that has these flowing underwater bodies uh, that may be actually host of life. One of the rules of thumb of astrobiology is you follow the water, and wherever there's water, that is in liquid form, there very very well may be life as well. But the thing about the James Webb Telescope is that it can, it will help us discover planets outside of our solar system. We already have about 5,000 planets that have been identified uh, outside of our solar system, that is, of um, of stars within our galaxy, and um, and some of them may be Earth-like. Many of them are not Earth-like, but there's always the possibility of life on these planets, whether in conditions we're familiar with or in extreme conditions that uh, life as we know it here on Earth would would not survive. And so the James Webb Telescope is going to increase our discovery of other planets and also begin to explore what astrobiologists refer to as biosignatures from the atmosphere. And so this telescope is going to be able to measure the composition of the atmospheres of these exoplanets um, as, as, as the sun, as the host stars' rays are refracted through the atmospheres, giving us a a visual spectrum of how that atmosphere is composed. And so we're looking for, you know, um, oxygen as a biosignature that we're familiar with, of course, on this planet. And so James, James Webb Telescope is going to enable us to really identify life inhabitable planets uh, outside of our solar system. So uh, there, stay, stay tuned. Uh, and, and I hope within my lifetime, certainly I think within your lifetime, Matt, that uh, there will be uh, some momentous discoveries uh, uh, in place because of this telescope. Hmm. So, so you are, in fact, excited. I am indeed. And you know what? And if, that, if we do discover life beyond... Um, this planet, we're going to have to go back and reread Genesis 1 and realize that there's more than one Genesis with regards to the creation of life in the universe. And, you know, that, that'll be a good thing. I think that'll give us a, a greater dose of humility uh, before God's, God and God's creative prowess in the universe. You know, what the Hubble telescope has also told us is that there are many more galaxies out there than we ever anticipated. And the latest count is that there are a trillion galaxies, and each galaxy contains millions upon millions of stars. And if every star has its own planetary system, which seems likely, then is there life beyond this planet? Probably so. Probably so. And and how are we going to... uh, how are we going to take that in theologically? Well, I think that's just, it's going to tell me that as the universe is bigger and more complex and more, and, and more lively, if you will, than anticipated, we would have to conclude that God is, uh, is greater and, uh, and, and more creative than, than we ever thought. I mean, God's work in the universe is clearly not limited to our planet. That's for sure. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of of that section in, in Amos 9, where Amos sort of drops in there that, that God has performed an exodus for, for other countries as, as well, other nations, or in Deuteronomy, where you find out God has performed conquests for other countries. And it's just these little hints dropped in there, it kind of decenters your own experience in um, some 
pretty rattling ways sometimes. Yeah, yeah. This would be the ultimate decentering once we discover life beyond Earth. <laughs> so, uh, to bring it back to biblical studies, what, what's the most significant yeah, back book? Back to the Bible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what's the most significant book in biblical studies in the last 50 years? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I would say, I have to say two books, uh, the book of Job and the and the book of Psalms. We've talked, we've talked enough about the Psalms, perhaps. No, no, um, I, I'm asking about the most significant book in biblical studies. Ah, The discipline. Okay. Uh, here are some that come to mind. There is Mark Sneed's work on the wisdom literature, which began with an article in which he questions whether the wisdom literature is actually a tradition at all, uh, given it's being so widespread and, and very hard to pin down. And then others like Will Kynes, who has um, talked about the, the bankruptcy of, of the wisdom tradition discipline among scholars. And, and so these, these works among in, within the wisdom literature is pushing the boundaries so that the wisdom literature, traditionally Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, are more dialogically engaged with other traditions outside of the wisdom literature than, than we give them credit. And so uh, one thing that I see them doing, sort of their agenda, and it's sort of the same thing that I'm doing with the Psalms, in a way, is that um, you want to bring bring the wisdom literature into greater conversation with traditions outside of the wisdom literature. The wisdom literature is not as closed in world, and and I would say the same for the Psalms. They're not part of a, a hermetically sealed world in which the dialogues are only internal and and not external. And so, so, so the work of of Mark Sneed and Will Kynes, I find to be very, very in, in, important. What's one idea in biblical studies that you think needs to die? In terms of theological discourse and conversation with the Bible, I think it is imperative to move away from the traditional male language that we do find in the Bible, but we also recognize that there's plenty of feminine imagery in the Bible as, as well with, refer, with regards to God. And so when it comes to um, public engagement theologically, whether uh, in, in worship or in the broader public, um, I would love to see masculine language attributed to God to, to simply die, <laughs> <laughs> even, even if it is used in the Bible. But we live in a new context, and the Bible does present a very complex view of God that is uh, both masculine and feminine and beyond gender uh, boundaries as as well. God is a uh, God in the Bible is a gender bender, and uh, and to recognize that, I think we need to revise our language today uh, with reference to God, in, in to, to be meaningful and and relevant in a very diverse culture in which we live. Yeah, and I speaking of theology, I have, I have a theological question to close out the speed round. And if you invited the Trinity for dinner, how many? extra places would you set? Okay, yes, yeah. You know, this question came came to mind just last week for Earth Day, and I um, <laughs> I made a Facebook post. I occasionally do Facebook posts that I think may be of interest to others theologically and, and such. And I said that I think uh, beginning with the creation traditions, the creation stories that we find, um, particularly with Genesis 2, we would have to increase the uh, expand the trinity a bit and so playing on the sort of contemporary analogs to the traditional trinity of father son and holy spirit that is creator sustainer redeemer i would add gardener to that as well because in genesis 2 the first act of creation by god is to cultivate a garden and and that garden role that role of cultivation is is uh, is found throughout the old testament with respect to god god is a gardener so creator redeemer sustainer and gardener so you're um, set, you're setting four extra places <laughs> oh maybe so oh you want to talk about a fifth one how about <laughs> teacher uh, so uh, which is what we get in the wisdom literature and in some of the psalms too and so if you want to talk about the trinity as as a way of crystallizing the various roles of God. I don't want to get into the metaphysics of the persons of God, but uh, the roles of God are very expansive and numerous. 
uh, in, in the Bible. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not trying to be heretical. I'm just trying to be biblically expansive. And of course, you know, the, the tr- Trinity itself is never used in the Bible not even in the New Testament. So it's helpful. And uh, the Trinity, the notion of the Trinity is helpful because it it does tap into sort of the communal aspect of, uh, of the triune God, intimately connected to each other, and perhaps even, I would say, dialogically connected too. Who knows? Who knows what's going on, uh, going on with God? Uh, and so I, I love the Trinity and its, um, its emphasis on sort of this unity of plurality of the, of the divine being, which our ancient uh, authors of Scripture recognized as, as the divine assembly or the divine council. And of course, you have wisdom personified in Proverbs, intimately connected with God. That is to say, when God says in Genesis 1, let us make humanity in our image, or when God says, let the waters bring forth swarming creatures, or let the earth produce plants and animals. It seems that God just does not like to work alone. God likes to work uh, with others, with other creative agents, and with, of course, with with human beings. And uh, and God knows with whom else. So that's God's prerogative. But it does seem that God likes to work with others collaboratively in many respects. And the Trinity, I think, affirms that in, in a very um, mystical way, perhaps, but not limited to the Trinity either. That's, that's my little heresy there. That, that's, that's a, I uh, opened up a, a whole world there. So that's great. Now, I want to ask about the notion of dialogue. And I don't know if you ever read that article by Dennis Olson. He, he, he wrote an article, I think it, Maybe the subtitle was something about provisional monologization. And and so he was talking about the emphasis on dialogue in biblical studies. And, and I think biblical scholars in general want to preserve the diversity of Scripture. And he was talking about how in preaching, we sometimes have to make claims about God. You know, we we, we can't always hold dialogical tensions in every claim we make about God. And that's part of, maybe that's part of that discerning work that you're talking about, which which thing needs to be said now. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the limits of dialogue as a model, as you've thought about this, or perhaps where the dialogical model actually accommodates the need to sometimes monologue or say one thing or say God is like this. Yeah, yeah. So I would say every dialogue uh, is a formative, critical process of, of, of learning and for growth. But at every step in that dialogue, there, continues, there needs to be and continues to be positions that are uh, staked out and articulated, uh, because without those claims and counterclaims, uh, there would be no dialogue. So for every step in the process, there are outcomes, although they may be provisional, dialogical process, but it's, it's part of the, uh, it is part of the process. The dialogue needs to be, is sustained by the punctuation of claims uh, that are articulated by listening to each other. And so I would uh, consider that as an important part of discernment, that decisions have to be made. And things need to be said in the process of dialogue for it to be sustained, but also for the sake of, well, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the world. And and that has to be done from generation to generation to generation. So the fact that the Bible does preserve these various viewpoints uh, without erasing them is is an important part of the beginning of dialogue. Uh, But the end point of dialogue may not necessarily be finding common ground. Uh, sometimes that cannot be found, but what can be expected is uh, is mutual understanding and growth, and perhaps even transformation. Even at the end of that process, there still may not be agreement. But what can be said is that there has been an evolution of thinking that occasions, if not necessitates, new positions to be pronounced and articulated. So, for instance, with regards to creation. Today, I would say for me in this, for such a time as this, Psalm 104 
and Psalm 148 are more critical today than what we find in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8. But I also have a way of integrating them as well. So, so yeah, maybe not common ground, but maybe some, some measure of integration uh, as a way of moving forward is what can be hoped for, at least, in, in dialogue. So, so there is a role of monologue in the place of dialogue, as, as Dennis Olson would claim, and I, I wholeheartedly uh, agree. Is this, discernment requires decision. It, it requires coming to terms with what has been learned from the dialogue and, uh, and proclaiming it to the hills and, and to the cities and to the churches without ever totally cutting off the chances for continuing dialogue as well. Uh, the dialogue never ends. It's, it always is underway if it is hosted by, by folks who are willing to listen to each other. Yeah, and it's it's telling that the fourfold gospel tradition was seen as a logical continuation of what's happening in the Old Testament as well. Yeah, why do we have four gospels? Why do we have seven different creation accounts? It's all for critical dialogue for our discernment and decision. Yeah, in fact, uh, a wonderful in fact, um, illustration of that is in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, in which verse 4 says, do not answer a fool. And the following verse says, answer a fool. And, and there are reasons given for refraining from answering and for answering a fool. And uh, does that, is that meant to paralyze us as readers that, uh, oh, we don't have any clear guidance on whether to respond to a fool or not? No. They're simply reasons for helping you discern which way to go within the given situation you find yourself in. And so, yeah, in, in fact, in this time of polarization, political and otherwise, that's a very pressing question. Do you respond to those who seem to be so beyond the pale in, in your estimation, or do you respond and hope that there will be some kind of mutual agreement and common ground to be achieved? Sometimes it may be just a totally wasted effort that can cause, in fact, greater damage. In fact, I, I, I know from my um, Black colleagues who are more than willing to engage in conversation over uh, the legacy of enslavement in this country. But when it comes to white racists who can't see anything from the perspective of the other, particularly from the perspective of communities of color, realizing it makes no difference to enter into dialogue, why would you want to re-traumatize yourself by engaging with a white racist who cannot see what is around? And so, so the question is very much alive. Do you respond or do you not respond? There are times in which you need to walk away from an argument because you realize it's just going to cause greater damage to be engaged in it. And there are other occasions in which you have to speak up and call truth to power in order to create change. And so one of the things I, which was kind of a discovery for me among some of these psalms, some of these psalms of lament can really be called psalms of protest. And I realized that protest, um, as, as we saw in so many streets and so many of our cities uh, after the murder of George, George Floyd and, and others, that protests are part of the ongoing dialogue for change. Protests are not a way of cutting off dialogue. They're a way of pushing the dialogue in, in ways that could not, be, could not be sustained without protests, even, on the, even in the streets. That changes our picture of what a dialogue is, too, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, one image of a dialogue is, is everyone's just kind of sitting around comfortably in sofas and you know, sharing tea together and and without emotion, too much emotion, discussing something uh, with calm, cool collection. But if protest becomes part of dialogue, that changes the picture. Uh, very much so. And that would be a dramatic example of pronouncing and proclaiming a message that would be received as subversive by the powers that be. But, but really forces, it's a way of forcing a dialogue without which... Without, and without the protests, the dialogue may never be instigated, may never occur. So protest 
the constructive side of protest. And I would say any any protest is constructive when done without violence and such. Protest as protest is meant to push toward a new dialogue that has been needing, uh, that has needed to be hosted and sustained ever since um, 400 years ago. This is a uh, it's a way of protest is a way of forcing dialogue. And to be to be part of a dialogue, you need to know who you are and what you believe in and what your values are. And and those those and to hold on to those values um, as you listen to the other. Dialogue is not a uh, a means of of moving into wishy-washy indecision and passivity. Dialogue is a way of forming and articulating positions that are really important uh, in the world. Well, Bill, I thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with OnScript about your book, for drawing us into this dialogue with the Psalms. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Matt. And uh, I hope your listeners uh, have gained something uh, from the dialogue that we've hosted uh, together uh, during this hour. It's, uh, I'm, I'm very grateful, and, uh, and I thank you for, for having this dialogue uh, between the two of us uh, about the Psalms and about the Bible and about the world in which we live today. Absolutely. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just two or five dollars per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study/donate.